Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all here. I've been going through the Gospel of John, and uh, I love it. It's so good. Uh, Hopefully, I can share some of that passion with you this morning, and we can learn together. Um, We're going to be in Chapter 2. should already know by now if you have uh, listened to any of the sermons I've done so far on the book of John. Um, What John's doing is he's bringing out signs to reveal to us who Jesus is. Um, And these things are to back the claims that he makes in what I I refer to as the foyer. So the foyer of John is John 1, 1 to 18. And John this disciple who, who Jesus loved, he brings out these bold claims about who Jesus, are, who Jesus is. And they are huge concepts and they're, and they're brought forward in, in very almost poetic language. And it is a great place to, to be kind of overwhelmed with who Jesus is. <laughs> and if we, if we left it there, we'd probably just be confused. And that's why John, he brings these signs to, to flesh those those claims out um, and I was listening to um, some lectures by uh, Tim Mackey you might know him from he does the gospel project and he talks about uh, the gospel of John he, he loves the gospel of John he's a total bible nerd and he says what John does in the foyer is he gets a whole bunch of soccer balls which are ideas of who Jesus is and he pours them all onto the field and then during the rest of the gospel, he kind of like kicks each one forward a little bit in all the stories that he tells. And so the, by the end, all these ideas that are like soccer balls are all at the other side of the field where you can look at them and go, okay, now are you going to believe in this Jesus? And so that, that's really helped me as I go through. I can, when, I, when I read the foyer, that 1, 1 to 18, and I, and I see these phrases about who Jesus is, I can connect them to all these ideas that run through all the different stories, the signs and the dialogue in the book of John. It's really been helpful for me. And so once again, I'm going to take the same approach that I've done the rest of the time. We're going to look at this sign that's a story of what Jesus did. And we're going to connect that to truths in the foyer. So in 1, 1 to 18. And then we're going to also look at how that truth connects back into the Old Testament. There's a lot of assumed knowledge of the Old Testament that kind of is going to fly over your head. You're not going to understand and get the fullness of who Jesus is unless you connect these ideas into the foyer and then back into the Old Testament. Um, But also, I'm going to end by giving you two grave warnings. There's two really serious warnings in this this text. Um, And we're going to not end on a light note. And I'm going to look at these grave warnings. Um, Yeah, so I'm going to pray now. Yeah, Heavenly Father, we need you. Yeah, your word is, is a revelation of who you are. Who can know you? Only to those who you reveal yourself. Oh, open our eyes and our hearts to who you are and what you're doing. Oh, it's such a treasure to know you. It's so precious. Help us not to 
to be used to it, to be accustomed to it. Help us to understand. Help us to see again afresh your glory and your goodness. Amen. So I'm going to set the scene for you. Um, the disciples in John after this foyer in 1, 1 to 18, there's this disciple handover. John the Baptist, not the author, but the Baptist, in this story, hands over his disciples to Jesus. He says, behold the lamb. He said, look, this man is after me, but he came before me and he is greater than me. And from these things, John the Baptist hands over his disciples to Jesus. And then these disciples travel with Jesus to this, this wedding where the first sign is performed. And this is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, his first sign, where he turns water into wine. And we see in this story as well this subtle shift in Jesus. Jesus seems like he's a little bit rude to his mother. It's not necessarily rude, but a little bit dismissive. He seems to push his mother's will aside. And we can see him turning from his mother's will into this life of ministry where he's all about the Father's will, his heavenly Father's will. And now Passover is approaching. And Passover is a celebration of when God set his people free from slavery to Egypt. And the way that he did that was through Moses, all these horrible things were brought onto the the, the Egyptian people and onto the Pharaoh, but the Pharaoh, he wouldn't let the people go. And so it all built to this one horrible thing that, that God brought upon them. And this was the angel of death who killed all the firstborn. And the only way the people could be protected from this angel of death is if they were obedient to God and they sacrificed the lamb and put the lamb's blood on the, their doorposts. And then the angel of death would pass over that house. And so this Passover feast is approaching. And everyone is travelling to Jerusalem to celebrate and remember what God did in setting his people free. And they came to sacrifice to God in the temple that was in Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem was usually around about 200,000 people. And then, in this time, it grows to, I think, probably about a million people. Some historical records say something like 2.7 million. I think that's a bit of an exaggeration. I think it's about 1 million people from 200,000 to 1 million. Who's tried to go on a holiday recently down south or something? <laughs> because of COVID, it's, like, it's silly down there. This, this was... Far, far worse. It was a circus. Everyone was in Jerusalem. And when the travellers arrived, they needed two things. First, they needed the right currency for the temple tax. And second of all, they needed a sacrifice. Unless they were going to bring one the whole way with them, they find their pure and spotless sacrifice, their pleasing sacrifice, and then they take that thing on the road. Difficult. So they need a sacrifice. There's estimates, Josephus says, he, he says 250,000 sacrifices. 
over the Passover week. In one week, in one temple. That is huge. And the, the travellers need these two things. They need the right currency and the right sacrifice. And so what happens is the Gentile court, which is the large outer court in Jerusalem, it's been turned into a marketplace. There are just people buying and selling sacrifices. There are people exchanging money so that you can pay the temple tax in the right coin. And it's good business. Like someone's making money. Where there's a market, someone's making money. It's kind of the point. It's the purpose of a market, really. And this, I believe it's very clear that there's two temple cleansings in the ministry of Jesus. I believe he clears the temple once now at the beginning of his ministry and he clears the temple at the end. All arguments I've heard to say that they are the same cleansing, I find they just fall over before they even really get going. I think it's clearly two. And it's good business. In the second clearing of the temple, Jesus says that they're a den of robbers. It's not the first time Jesus has been to the temple. If you remember in, in Luke, if you know the Gospel of Luke well, his, his parents went every year and took him every year for Passover to Jerusalem. And he went into the temple. And you might remember that when Jesus was 12, he's left at the temple during Passover. And it's at that point in that gospel we hear Jesus say that it's his father's house. His parents are looking for him and he says, well, didn't you know I'd been my father's house? And now Jesus enters the temple again for the first time since he began his public ministry. He enters his father's house. And so we're going to go from John 2.13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, doves, and others sitting at tables, exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords, and he drove them out of the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that he's written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him. What sign can you show us to prove that you have authority to do this? Jesus answered them. Destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken about what is his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said and they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and they believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about men for he knew what was in each person. Now, the first thing I really want to connect back to the foyer, the first truth about Jesus is that Jesus is the Son of God. 
By calling the temple my father's house, Jesus is implying that he is the son of God. And that has meaning. It kind of blows straight by us when we read the text, but that has deep meaning, both for Jesus and the people who heard it. Now, in the foyer, John 1, 14, we read, The word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This Son of God concept is an idea that John really wants us to get. And it activates like these hyperlinks into the Old Testament. What the Son of God is, he's many things. I'm going to touch on a few of them. First of all, he's the king of God's people. Now, it's just at a very basic level. If God has a people, who is the heir to God's throne over his people? God's son. At a really basic level, God's people are going to be ruled by God's son. It's just a natural progression of logic. Uh, Nathaniel knew this when Jesus was, was going around collecting his disciples in Uh, John 1, Nathanael says, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. And uh, here in this story, in the clearing of the temple, the disciples connect Jesus with David, who's probably the most uh, famous king of Israel, a king of God's people. And they connect him through this sentence, zeal for your house consumes me. And this is from Psalm 69, and this is a psalm of David. And so they're connecting him to King David here. Now David also was called the son of God, which is, it seems strange, but it's true. In Psalm 2.7, God says to David, you are my son. So the Son of God is the King of Israel. And people knew that. And when Jesus claimed the temple as his father's house, he was claiming to be the King of Israel, at least in a subtle way. But Jesus is the greater King. He's the greater David. David was promised that his descendants would sit on the throne forever. And Jesus is the forever king. I've talked before about types in the Old Testament. There's types or foreshadows. There's things that point us forward to Jesus. But Jesus is the anti-type. Jesus is the real thing. There are sons of God in the Old Testament. There are kings of God's people in the Old Testament. But Jesus is the son of God. The only begotten. He is the forever king of God's people. Another thing that the the son of God is, is it's the revelation of the person of God. There's this concept that's not, it's a bit foreign to us, that is like father, like son. And back in John 1.18 in the foyer, no one has seen God but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father. He has made him known. 
Later on in John, Philip says, show me the Father. And Jesus says in reply, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. You see, the ultimate Son of God is Emmanuel, God with us. If you see Jesus, if you know Jesus, you've seen the Father and you know the Father. He's the perfect reflection, the perfect revelation of God. In hindsight, I think John, the author, really sees the irony of Jesus being asked what authority he has to clear the temple. As the Son of God, he's not only the King of Israel, but God himself. He has all authority to clear the temple. And the last concept I want to look at in this Son of God is it is the perfect human or the perfect example of a human being. You see, in Genesis, we learn that a human being is an image bearer. We were designed and made to reflect God. And so Jesus, being the perfect reflection of God, is an example for us of the perfect human being. There's a lot of lines we draw when we read scripture, when we read of Jesus, suddenly things get turned into application. Why do they get turned into application? Because when we look upon the Son of God, we look upon the perfect revelation of God and we look upon the perfect human. But it not only presents him as the example, it actually qualifies Jesus as the sacrifice the perfect sacrifice without blemish. So we learnt in the beginning of John, John the Baptist, not the author, points to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb. So Jesus is the Son of God. It's very clear from this that Jesus is making sure we understand he's a Son of God. The King of God's people, the perfect revelation of God and the perfect example of a human being. Another thing that Jesus is, is he claims to be the temple. (laughs) He claims to be the temple. He connects himself to the temple. In the foyer, John 1, 14, it says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling, which is the word tabernacle. He tabernacled amongst us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And you might be a little bit lost here. Well, temple, tabernacle, there's two different things, Kyron. Where are you going? Well, stay with me here. You see, when Jesus says, when he connects himself to the temple, there's a lot of assumed knowledge. And I need to take you back into the Old Testament. And track with me here, this is going to be difficult. So in Eden, in the Garden of Eden, God and Adam and Eve, they walked together in the cool of the evening. They were in communion, in relationship together. And then in the fall, they were separated by sin from God. But there was this promise that God would provide a way. He would make a way that humans, sinful humans, could be in the presence of God again, just like they were in the Garden of Eden. 
And so when the Israelites were set free and they were chosen to be God's people, we see that Moses is in from about Exodus 33 through to 40. Okay, so Moses, he has a tent of meeting where he meets with God face to face. So since Eden, that kind of closeness to God was not known. But there's this tent of meeting, a tabernacle of meeting, where Moses is meeting with God face to face. And God wants to move his people towards the promised land, but Moses pleads with God. He says, well, how, how are we going to be your people? As we're moving around, how do we know where your people? How does anyone else know where your people? You need to dwell with us. You need to, you need to come with us. Moses even, he pretty much refuses. He says, I don't want to go from here. I don't want to leave this place. I don't want to take your people anywhere unless you dwell with us. And so God provides a way that he, in his holiness, can dwell with sinful human beings, with a group of sinful human beings. And that provision is the tabernacle, which is a tent, a tent of meeting. And in that tabernacle, there's ways where God overcomes sin so that he might be with his people. There's provisions. There's sacrifices. And God dwells in this tabernacle, this tent, in a pillar of fire and smoke, the same pillar that led them out of slavery. Now, if we skip forward, David is now the king of Israel. Because Israel asked for a human king. And he's looking out from, David's looking out from his house as the king, which is a fancy house made of cedar. And he sees the tent of God that is still a tent. And he's like, this is wrong. How can I dwell in a house of cedar while God dwells in a tent? And so he says, I want to build you a house, God. And God says, nah, don't build me. I'll I'll let your son build me a house. And so he promises that David's descendant would build him a house. And so Solomon builds the mighty temple. This is the temple roughly that Jesus is in after a few renovations. And so we, hear, we see in this story that the tabernacle and the temple and the Garden of Eden are connected in both the tabernacle and the temple, there's imagery of the Garden of Eden. There's imagery of the Garden of Eden put in there by God. This is God's provision so that sinful people can meet with a holy God. When Jesus stands and claims, associates himself with the temple and claims to be the temple, he's saying, I am God's provision so that sinful humans can meet with a holy God. I am God's provision so that you can see God face to face. I am the way that you can be led by a pillar of fire and smoke. I am the resting place of God's glory. I am the visible glory of God. We see when, when Solomon finished the temple... The, the sacrifice was consumed 
and the glory of God, the visible glory of God, the Shekinah glory came into the temple. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is that glory of God that we can see. And the, and the Jewish leaders didn't get this. They didn't make that connection. They're so about the physical and temporal things. You know, sometimes when I feed my cat, if I feed her like tuna or something really smelly, I put her on the ground. She knows exactly where it is because she's smell her, right? But if I feed her a cooked meat or a red meat or maybe even a white meat, she can't actually smell it. So I put her on the ground and she hasn't seen it. She just looks at me. And so I think, you know what? I will use the universal sign of it's over there and I'll point. And so I go this, huh? and I point at it. And what does she do? She goes, and she looks at my finger and she just stares at my finger and she's like, is it on the end of your finger? I mean, that, it must be pretty small. And so she starts to lick the end of my finger. I'm like, oh my goodness. It's, it's, oh. And this, this is what the Jewish leaders have done. The temple points forward. It looks forward to Jesus, who is the ultimate temple. He's the real thing. He is God's absolute provision, his greatest provision for sinful people to meet with a holy God. But the Jewish leaders are sitting there, they're just still looking at the finger. They're obsessed with the finger. And they can't see what's right in front of them. Even once all the other sacrifices in the temple were gone, driven out by an angry saviour, they couldn't see the Lamb of God standing in front of them. After all the gold was gone, everything of earthly value was gone. They couldn't see the glory of God, the value of God right in front of them. After the chaos of the marketplace had quietened, they didn't realise that they were face to face with God in the temple. And so they asked for a sign. How do you have the authority to do this, Jesus? You see, the temple clearing alone was a sign. It took me a while to put the pieces together. But once I started to imagine what happened in this, in this story, the temple clearing alone is miraculous. I mean, just go somewhere and start flipping over tables of coins. Start scattering someone's money and see how long you can do that for before just one or two guys grab you. I mean, Jesus, Jesus wasn't known for being a huge guy. It's just, he looked like a man. But in this sign, in this miracle, he's so full of the fury of God and the authority of God that everyone just watches and it's not like it's a small crowd. The outer temple's huge. It's a circus in there. And it all stops. It's all driven out under the righteous anger and the authority of God himself in flesh. His zeal for the Father's house was also a sign that they didn't see. The disciples saw it, and they probably saw it in hindsight. John remembers that during the time, he didn't really know much of what was going on, but after they remembered. 
And Jesus invites them to participate in another sign. He says, well, you tear this temple down and I'll rebuild it in three days. It sounds like a sign that they can't really participate in. There's no way they could turn, tear the temple down. <laughs> There's no way they wanted to tear the temple down. And so it seems like God, well, Jesus couldn't fulfill this sign. But it's so clever. It's a sign that they unwillingly and unwittingly participated in. They accidentally helped Jesus fulfill this very sign. And even the invitation to fulfill this sign was itself a prophetic sign. So Jesus says, tear this temple down, I'll rebuild it in three days. They don't get that he's talking about his body. And so they accidentally participate in this sign. In the second cleansing of the temple, right at the end of Jesus' ministry, right at the end of Jesus' life, he angers them to the point that they make sure that he's killed. He allows them to tear down his temple so that he might rebuild it in three days and prove his authority. I think that's what's so beautiful about this. Is John includes this sign because it's so beautiful looking back. John looks back after the resurrection and he's like, oh man, the temple. At the time, it was just chaos. I didn't really understand what was going on. But now when I look back, It's so beautiful. It's such a sign of of who Jesus is. There's two really grave warnings for us here in the text. First of all, there's a kind of belief that Jesus sees through is insufficient. And when Jesus sees through people, that's actually this idea of Jesus being the light of the world. That's part of that idea that John kicks forward as a, like a little soccer ball through every story. So you see it in Nathaniel when he understands who Nathaniel is. The Israelite who is who in there is no Jacob. And he sees through Simon, Peter. And now he sees through the people, the light, just a side note there. But there's a kind of belief This verb, belief, entrusting, there's a kind of way you can entrust yourself to Jesus, but Jesus sees through it as insufficient. It says, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was doing and performing, and they believed in his name or entrusted themselves to him. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them. It's Different tenses of this same, it's a belief verb. For he knew all people he could see in them. And I was thinking for so long, what is this kind of belief or entrusting you can have in Jesus that Jesus himself sees through as insufficient? I've been watching Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, and pirates are great. Uh, I don't know how they become the heroes of the show. It's very Interesting how that happens to us. Go, go, go. Hang on, are these guys the bad guys? I'm not sure. Go, go. But what a pirate does, right, is it's like, what do I want? I want gold, the high seas. Awesome. And so who do they make captain? Someone comes along and goes, well, I've got a boat, and I'm going to go get me some gold. And they're like, ah, captain. And they put a hat on him. 
but throughout the Pirates of the Caribbean, as soon as the captain does something that I like or is going in a direction that I don't want to go, it's a mutiny. It's just a captain of convenience. The thing that I aligned, that, that I wanted, that I desired, aligned with what you were doing for a moment, and so now you're my captain. And this is what's happening here. They see the miracles of Jesus. They see his power and their desires align for a second. What Jesus is doing aligns with what they want for a moment. But it doesn't last. They're not true seekers. And we see that throughout uh, John 1 and 2. There's these seekers who are looking for God and looking for God's king and they find Jesus. But Jesus sees through belief that doesn't come from a seeker. And this is my experience and it's through every one of the Gospels you see people falling away as Jesus moves out of alignment with the things that they want. Oh, I just pray that there's no one here with that kind of belief. I remember back over my youth ministry, there's so many times I sat in cars with youth chatting and I could see them that Jesus was moving out of alignment with what they wanted because they weren't seeking a king. He was just convenient. He was a captain of convenience. That's why at the end of John's gospel, he said, you must believe that Jesus is the Messiah, God's chosen king, the son of God. These idea of Messiah and son of God come with the believing. You're not entrusting yourself to him as a good guy or a prophet or a miracle worker. You're entrusting yourself to him in all that he is. It's so frightening. There, there can be a thing that looks like faith that isn't faith. I think we should all be a little frightened by that. And what's even more frightening is that Jesus gets like seriously angry twice. That's it. Like Jesus meek and mild. He generally was meek and mild. Full of love and grace. And there's two times where he loses it. Two times he's full of rage. And we learn. We have a grave warning. There's a type of worship There's this religious activity that you can do that angers Jesus. I found it really hard to narrow down exactly what this was. And it dawned on me. Jesus is the son of God. The perfect human examples in this story true worship a heart of true worship. And so we have in this story a contrast that helps us to understand what this false worship looks like. Next to Jesus' true worship in the temple, the false worship is exposed. You see, Jesus had zeal for his father's house. Zeal, that word comes from the word heat or fire. In him was a heat, was a burning for the father. And for the father's house, he burnt, he longed to be face to face with God. To be led day and night by God. To see the glory of God. And to be pleased and accepted by God. That's why the Ark of the Covenant is in the center of the temple. The Ark of the Covenant, what does it have in it? The Ten Commandments. 
How do you please God? What things should you avoid to not please God? There was a fire in the heart of Jesus for the Father and the Father's house. And everything else dims before this fire. What do people think about Jesus? Jesus just generally doesn't care. Like he loves people, but he doesn't, just generally doesn't care what people think of him. People are entrusting themselves to him, but that's of no value to him. Later on in this gospel, he says, just flat out, I don't accept glory from humans. He's all about the Father, pleasing the Father. Everything else dims before this fire that he has for his Father. In the marketplace, everyone's looking to gain something. And Jesus was willing to to lose everything. He cleared it twice. And he did lose everything. His zeal for his father's house did actually consume him. Just like the sacrifice in the first temple built by Solomon was consumed by God, approved by God. Jesus' zeal and fire for the, for the temple of God, for the Father, consumed him. You see, even the temple was being used as a way for, for Herod the Great. You know, the one who tried to kill Jesus when he was a child? Herod the Great, he rebuilt the temple and refurbished it for the Jews because he was a great builder. He did it to gain the allegiance of the Jews. Herod called himself the king of the Jews. He did it to gain the allegiance of the Jews, but also for his own glory. Herod had a fire in him that people would bow before him. He had a fire in him, a passion that people would see his glory. The Jewish leaders, they had, they had a passion for making money, it seems, for having power. And the worst thing of all, the thing that angers Jesus is they dressed it up. They dressed these things up as worship. They had a fire for things that weren't the Father and they dressed him up as worship. I have a question for you this morning. It's a question I've been asking myself. And this is like, out of all the chapters in John, out of all the sections in John, this is the sermon the church leader preaches to himself first and foremost. What is, what is our fire for? What is your fire for? What is burning in you? What do you have zeal for? What are you motivated for? What upsets you? That's what gives it away. What upsets you? What saddens you? What angers you? What motivates you? To be a true child of God. To participate in true worship. It's that fire for your father to be face to face with him, to be led by him day and night, to see his glory, to be accepted by him, to please him, to know him. Oh, it's so sad if we claim to be children of God, but we have a fire that's burning for things other than the father. And it is terrifying if we as a people if we have a fire and a passion for things other than God and we dress them up as worship. I want to pray for us.
Oh, Father, that we might know you, that pleasing you and loving you, dwelling in your presence would be the thing that we desire the most, that we wouldn't fear men or desire to please others or build our own glory, but that we would be we would have zeal for your house, zeal for our Father's house as true children of God, children that look like your only begotten, Jesus. Oh, change our hearts. Oh, help us to avoid this, this thing that angers you, where not only do we not have a fire for you as our Father, but our passions for other things get dressed up as worship, as things we're doing to please you when really we're just pleasing ourselves or building a kingdom of our, for ourselves, our own temple, our own glory. Yeah. Creating us clean hearts, Father. Amen.